Time for playing politics. Politics partnership between uh, WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune. John Rash and Scott Gillespie are with us on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Chad Hartman here. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. John, I'm going to start with you about a day later and about an hour and a half before we expect the first joint appearance from Biden and Harris. Give me your reaction to the selection of uh, uh, Kamala Harris. That it was concurrently a historic but also a safe choice by Vice President Biden because Senator Harris had been through a national campaign already. Whatever was to be found out had been found out. She had contended with it in that campaign. Certainly some issues will come up in the presidential sprint, which will be in a, uh, an election in about two and a half months or so. But that she in so many ways helps energize the Democratic base based on her unique life experience as a child of two immigrants, one of Jamaican descent and, and uh, one of Indian descent and, and uh, her work in the criminal justice system, her work in the U.S. Senate. And she's a very spirited campaigner, as the vice president himself found out on the debate stage in that electrifying moment earlier on in the campaign. Finally, I think what it also says is certainly not a whole lot of or, or certainly not just a whole lot of interesting aspects of Senator Harris's life, but also Vice President Biden and what kind of a candidate he has turned out to be, which is much more savvy than a lot of people gave him credit for, because after serial defeats in the first three states of the caucus and uh, primary season, he came roaring back in South Carolina, has not looked back secured the nomination and has a persistent lead over President Trump at this point. And this move probably will only solidify that. Scott, same thing to you on the broad strokes, and I'll go to both of you on some specifics of it. But just, just looking back, echoing some of John's points and some, some of the other points that stand out to you. Well, I think uh, Vice President Biden, like President Obama, uh, when he picked Biden initially for the first term uh, run, the first priority is to make sure that you pick somebody who voters will be confident could assume the presidency in the in the case of uh, an emergency. And uh, with Biden uh, at age 77, that's even a more relevant uh, qualification. So I think he, he checked that box right away in a way that, uh, frankly, uh, if you recall John McCain with the Palin pick, you know, that was what really uh, it sunk uh, that campaign, although he was behind when he made the pick. But uh, people looked at her and didn't feel like she she was ready, qualified to be uh, president of the United States. I think that it's a different uh, a different scenario with uh, Kamala Harris. John's right that uh, she was vetted in the primaries. Uh, she also brings that law and order uh, background cuts both ways, as we know. Mm-hmm. It could help the Biden-Harris campaign because the more Trump runs on it, you know, you can you can point to uh, Harris's background as somebody who uh, was part of the law, uh, you know, the judicial system, the law enforcement system. On the other hand, obviously, we know that on the farther left side of the Democratic Party, there are people who aren't happy with her uh, pick because of because of that background. Let's talk, John, about and you alluded to it, the and it was a feisty encounter. They had in the debate, and, and, and I, like a lot of us, 
Um, I'm in the group where I thought Harris got the better of the vice president on busing. I thought he was struggling. I think we have to point out that the next couple days later, Senator Harris herself had a tough time kind of clarifying where she stood. But on that point, so many people have talked about that and said, well, that would be a detriment. And I just think historically they're not paying any attention. Uh, let's go back to George Bush and Ronald Reagan. That was fairly ugly, right, in, in their debates. We want to go back even to Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. By all accounts, they really didn't even care for each other. Let's go more current. Uh, John Kerry and John Edwards had a number of encounters in 2004. And then let's go back to the last election. Let's go back to what Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio were saying about candidate Donald Trump, and they're all just right in line. So I think in the analysis, we get so caught up in like one moment and forget that moments like that happen all the time because they're vying for a position of power themselves. And at the time, they're not thinking about the vice presidential pick, and they shouldn't be. They do happen all the time, and you're quite right that this is not the first example of two former rivals coming together to form a ticket in relative to some of the debate dust-ups in previous years. This one wasn't as serious or searing as some of the others have been. Again, I think it speaks a lot about Vice President Biden's character. He could have, and some of his aides reportedly thought he should have, held that against her, had decided that they were not, in Vice President Biden's words, simpatico, which is what he was really looking for in the vice presidential pick, um, and that they couldn't work together after that. And he was seen walking to a press conference on several notes on Senator Harris, and one of them says, said, don't hold grudges. And I think that relative to how President Trump seems to hold many, regardless if you're a supporter or detractor of him, there's no question if you cross him, um, you know, he doesn't forget and he often goes out of his way to make life very, very difficult, which when you're president of the United States, you're going to have people cross you all the time and you need to work with them. So I think it, it speaks a, a lot about Vice President Biden. Finally, I think you make quite a compelling point. What's forgotten in that is that, A, this was an issue from the 1970s that certainly wasn't on any voter's mind at that point, and B, while Senator Harris delivered the line well and it seemed effective at the time, her position wasn't fundamentally different in terms no. of when she Correct. was finally asked whether she supported busing. She basically said, no, not necessarily. So um, okay. it didn't really have long-lasting resonance. John, uh, John makes the point, Scott, about some of the close supporters to Joe Biden. And one of them that's been named a lot is Chris Dodd, who's right at the top of one of the key advisors, former senator, and this idea that Dodd, who had the ear of Biden the entire time, that Dodd was telling people he didn't feel like that uh, Harris basically apologized enough or that she was potentially too ambitious. The ambitious line is just so remarkably insulting. Anybody who has achieved any of these positions is, guess what, ambitious. You don't just fall out of bed and you're the pres presidential candidate or your senator or governor. So I don't think she has to apologize for one second about being ambitious. The question I ask, Scott, and I want you, John, to jump into the same thing, is 
I was in the group who had very high hopes for Harris. And then watching that debate, I thought, let me pat myself on the back. But, Scott, after that night, she went the other way. She really never had success after that. Are we convinced that because of what happened with her campaign quickly and it went the wrong way, that she will be an effective VP nominee nominee out there in whatever limited way people are going to be in, in campaign? I think that's a great question, and, and uh, I, I don't know why her campaign stalled out like it did. But I can say that today I can't look back on that cam- campaign and tell you this is what Kamala Harris stood for. These were the, her, you know, primary issues. I just don't, I don't recall them. Uh, so she didn't articulate them very well or didn't have them, one or the other, uh, because, you know, um, the, they're not memorable. It's, she's not, that campaign is not memorable. It faded uh, relatively quickly, really. So, um, yeah, how does that translate now to a presidential campaign? Maybe not well. Um, but this is going to be such an unusual campaign the rest of the way, too, yeah. without a big convention, you know, with with virtual events. It, it's different than anything we've ever seen. John, on that same point, elaborate. And then also, as Scott just said, let's say it's a more traditional, you know, four months or so left where we're seeing the typical convention and we're seeing rallies. We know Donald Trump can bring up big crowds. We don't know. If Joe Biden can, Kamala Harris did at times, any any reason to believe if it was a normal campaign that Harris would not have been the choice? Well, she was a good messenger, but not necessarily with the message, as Scott so quickly pointed out there. And now she gets to be out there, however virtually, and be able to channel Vice President Biden's positions and what the Democratic Party officially settled on in their platform, and she should be relatively effective at that. You're right. When she announced her candidacy, she did it in Oakland to 20-plus thousand people, which at the time was just a remarkable number, and it looked like she might take this running away. But part of it is that you know she has this very strong uh, prosecutorial background as attorney general and, and other positions she held in California, and then came of political age in the campaign when that was all being questioned, and especially right now in the uh, wake of the tragic killing of George Floyd here in Minneapolis and all the protests across the country, that may not be looked at as much of an asset. And so part of it is in the campaign, she didn't seem to really know which direction to go with that and didn't lean forward with her you know, very significant career that she had in California at that point. And, you know, she also flip-flopped on the Medicare for All issue mm. and, and seemed to change positions a little bit here. Now that And, and I don't think, John, she did a very good job explaining her differences on Medicare for All. There were so many times I watch interviews, and she's trying to explain it. I thought, to be honest, when she was pushed on questions, I didn't think she was that great, and I thought she would be a lot better. And we're going to find out in the one debate she has with Vice President Pence, because while certainly a lot of observers are looking to see how she takes on the vice president directly, because that's been her M.O. in the United States Senate, the debate moderators and the questioners will ask her some very direct questions. And my guess is this will be among them in terms of 
where did you stand? How did this change so much? And, and where where are you really at, especially because she's she is expected to play such a significant role in the administration? And if Vice President Biden wins, it's unlikely he'll run for a second term by all indications. So those questions are, are already going to come fast and furious, and she better be ready for them at the debate. All right, let's pause, make it a short break, come back. We'll talk locally including the uh, the biggest congressional race in a primary where Representative Ilhan Omar won easy. Why did that happen? Let's talk about it when we come back. Continuing with uh, plain politics, Chad Hartman with John Rash and Scott Gillespie. John, what was the money? About uh, $8 million on Antone Melt-Mukes and Ilhan Omar, others in the race, John Mason included for the primary, Democratic side, Congressional 5th District. A lot of money came in from folks uh, who were supporting Antone, who normally are supporters of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell. A lot of that money also were supporters of uh, Democrats who did not like the direction that Ilhan Omar was taking, uh, felt like on some policy issues, that too much attention was being paid to national issues as opposed to the 5th District. There were strong differences between the two. And let's be honest, she blew them out. She won. I think we're waiting still for the final totals. The last I saw, John, it's about 18 points. That is not a close race. Why was the victory so decisive? Partly because the DFL turnout was quite significant, of course, because of this race. But you also had some uh, contests where progressive challenges to already liberal legislators like Ray Dean and Jeff Hayden brought out a lot of voters and they nearly, you know, went completely for what was perceived to be the more progressive um, candidates, and that includes Ilhan Omar. She also got a late assist um, from the DFL party in terms of them really rallying around her and accusing her main opponent of some improper campaign finance techniques that he used during the campaign. And you're quite right that the margin of victory was decisive. And yet he did make a significant dent. And I think it did show that um, the fifth district, it may be more monolithic in Minneapolis, but it does include St. Louis park portions of Edina uh, and some of the Northwestern parts of the the city, uh, Robbinsdale, uh, Brooklyn center, and, and a few other suburbs up there. And the vote totals were different there. So there clearly is part in part a geographic dividing line and and kind of a political moderation dividing line that exists, which will be quite compelling to see how this remains intact as we go into redistricting after the 2020 census is complete here. But uh, often when representatives are reelected, then they're often in office for quite some time. It's sometimes that second election that's very difficult. Jason Lewis found this out the hard way as an example. Yep. But my sense is is that it'll be unlikely that in the next election that Ilan Omar will have such a significant and well-funded challenger as she did this time. Scott, I have about 90 seconds left, I think. And, and John made this point um, as part of the longer answer. It also still talks about the energy in the left uh, uh, for the Democrats and that, yes, you have some um, – who maybe by fellow Democrats are perceived as center left, 
But you look at these races, you look at Omar, you look at the uh, traction that Bernie Sanders was able to get. But in the state of Minnesota, it's not as much a center-left race right now with the Democratic Party. I think it's more further left, and that's where a lot of the money's coming, too. That's right. We had a line in our editorial endorsement for Melton Mukes that said that uh, Representative Omar wants to uh, lead a movement and Melton Mukes wants to serve the district. Well, the movement won last night yep. and it won big. Yep. And uh, I will say that specifically uh, with regard to Representative Omar, Donald Trump made her a national target. And yes. there's just no no way that the 5th Congressional District in Minnesota was going to kick out somebody who Donald Trump had identified as, you know, enemy number one, two, three or four. And uh, so uh, I did not find her victory surprising, but I found the margin really, really interesting. And I agree with your point. Excellent, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Look forward to it. Enjoy the week. We'll talk uh, next Wednesday. Thank you, Chad. Thanks, Chad.